Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Langston Hughes Performing Arts Institute. My name is Tim Lennon. I'm the executive director of Langston, the nonprofit programming entity here in the building. Uh, and it is my sincere pleasure to welcome you all into the building. I know that I've heard some of you haven't been here in quite a while. Some of you have uh, never been in here. And so it's really always fun to welcome new guests into this facility. Uh, there has been amazing cultural work happening in this space for 45 years in its current iteration, uh, just a few months, and so we're really excited to uh, welcome new faces, both uh, to our organization and to the space. Um, we're also extremely excited to, to have Dr. Mona here tonight. Um, our organization's mission is to um, build and strengthen community through black arts and culture, and so you might be wondering, why is a book about a doctor who's not even black from Flint, Michigan, which is not even the central area, um, would relate. But um, in hearing her story and, and in reflecting upon the book, um, it really highlights the interconnectedness of all of our communities, um, particularly when we're up against the, the forces of governments that can be um, antagonistic, um, if not downright just um, totally not caring at all about our communities. Um, so the, the work of allyship, the work of, of um, partnership and um, solidarity in fighting against these forces that can feel sometimes um, impossible to, to fight against is really um, very important to all of us. And so I'd encourage you to um, just enjoy this talk, um, civic engagement, personal triumph over adversity. I mean, it's got all of the things, uh, and I think you'll really enjoy it. And I'll let Rick, uh, our esteemed colleague over at Elliott Bay, tell you a little bit more about the show. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. And um, on behalf also of uh, the people at the Seattle Public Library, Nadia and Nico, who are here tonight, and others, um, they've been involved with this evening happening here. Um, there was earlier some talk and work about it happening at the library, but they had a program, so they said, we want to be involved, and, and so um, they're here as part of this. Uh, you will hear when um, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha and, um, and Nick Licata, who will be up here in conversation with her, um, really what this book and what this evening is about, um, because the story she tells and is, is so, so um, vibrant and, and has such force coming from her. And I think what um, Nick Licata, who um, wrote a very good review of the, her book in the Seattle Times this last week, and his own years as a member of the city government, but also um, you know, journalist and author of a book called Becoming a Citizen Activist, um, could speak to many things. The thing I want to point out in a way that, that is, may not get so commented on, um, but it is sort of why we're here, is that she's written an extraordinary book. Um, there was nothing exactly in her you know, busy, busy life that would say she could write a good book. I mean, just, you, there's a story there, but to actually get on the page is something she's done, and there's almost an ease with what the, the book, this book, um, what the eyes don't see, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city, this book that she has written, uh, that speaks to this with, with a great um, power, and uh, there's, there's stories in here of family, the stories of her own life as a, as a pediatrician to children, uh, to, I guess, pediatricians art to children, that's sort of being redundant, but, uh, but, but her work as a doctor and how her own family coming out of Iraq has come to be part of this country and, and the things they believe in and work for and strive for as uh, within themselves, but also as part of the larger, of the larger fabric of, of us all. And uh, again, this is in this book, along with all the developments that happen with flint and water and, and everything um, as, as you will see and as you would read. 
Um, the people that publish her book, um, she's in good company. She's uh, her editor and her publisher, the people that also publish ta Coates and Brian Stevenson's um, Just Mercy, which is a book this has kind of some connections or analog analogous to someone who has worked hard to do things and then put some of this into a book. So she will, they will be up here, she and Nick will be up here um, in conversation, and then um, after a part of, a point of that, the lights will come up so they can see you, and you would be certainly, uh, you know, drawn into this conversation to um, ask, you know, questions and, and uh, continue that, and then when this is over, um, she will be over at this table where we have books of hers. We also have some copies of Nick Licata's book. We also brought another book. I asked her beforehand, I said, do you know, this is like, and there are people here from Michigan tonight, that's just also, I found out uh, there's some people here I didn't know were from Michigan, <laughs> saying, I've you know, got this family thing going on. Uh, but I said, do you know this poet, Dunya McHale, who's an Iraqi poet who lives in Michigan, and Dr. Mona just lit up, she says, oh, of course, and she went into this thing, and um, they have much the same background, uh, Chaldean, uh, Iraqi family, and Dunya McHale is, will be at Elliott Bay on August 6th. She's a poet writing in Arabic, but also English, and she is also a journalist, and she's done a book, uh, which we brought a few copies of, called The Beekeeper, which is a powerful book of journalism where she has gone back to Iraq and talks to women who, um, Yazdi women who survived um, these horrible things with Daesh, the ISIS guys um, who had them captive. But it's a powerful book of witness and testimony, and Dunya McHale will be, there's a little, little sign there, but she'll be at LA Bay on August 6th. So continuing um, our, our uh, hopefully have, these are two great, wonderful Iraqi writers out of Michigan um, to have here. So with that, um, again, for everyone at the Seattle Public Library, for Langston and for Elliott Babel Company, we thank you for being here. And now I ask you to please join in welcoming Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha and Nick Takata. Well, here we are. Thank you very much for coming out this evening. And I have permission to say Dr. Mona. That would be great. Um, I wasn't able to hear all the details that was said beforehand. So I'm just going to jump into, so we have enough time to get through questions and things of that sort. Um, as most of you probably know, uh, Dr. Mona is the director of the pediatri pediatric uh, residency program at, this, at Flint City's Hospital of Hurley Medical Center. It's one of the few what they call public hospitals, and we were talking earlier, only 2% of the hospitals in the United States are public hospitals, and that plays a critical role. Perhaps you might talk about that as we go further. I want to begin by saying that um, I, in reading the book, I was amazed to see that 42,000 children were exposed to lead toxic poisoning, and that you had been an environmental activist. You uh, came from a family that was a long tradition of challenging authorities. And yet, uh, to, per to paraphrase the title of your book, uh, what your eyes don't see, you do not know. And I thought that was such a, a clever way of looking at things. So uh, it's what I found with, with, with citizens who sometimes are struggling, it's you, you have to learn to see the world as, as you want it, not it's, as it's given to you. So my first question is, walk us through the personal process you went through, and what were the critical first steps that, that sort of opened your eyes that there was actually a problem here after you had told people, just, you know, the water's fine? 
Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Nick, and thank you, everybody, for being here. It's great to be in Seattle. You guys have an amazing city um, and amazing people. So the, the process of kind of how I got to where I was and when I realized there was a problem all started really randomly and out of serendipity. So I, I happened to be at home um, in my house for a last minute barbecue with old friends from high school. Uh, texting last minute, hey, can you come over? Sure, come over. Girlfriends um, drinking wine, so always drink wine with girlfriends and friends. Um, and my high school girlfriend, who I didn't even know, um, that she was this, happens to be a water expert. I'm like, oh, great, you're a water expert. She used to work at the EPA. Um, Elin's her name, and Elin came up to me, glass of wine in her hand. She's like, Mona, you, you know, you're up in Flint. I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, have you heard about the water? I'm like, yeah, but you know, it's okay. You know, the state says everything is okay. She, we'd heard that it was brown and yellow, and my patients who I had seen that week um, were asking me as a credible physician, should I be giving this water to my babies? Should I be mixing my baby's formula with this water? And I was saying, yes, the water is okay. How can water not be okay? This is America. This is the 21st century. We have people and rules and regulations to make sure that our water is okay. But, but more importantly, we're, we're in Michigan. So I know there's some Michiganders in the audience. That we're, we're the mitten state. So lots of Michiganders are awesome. So yeah, wow, it was a lot. Even though I can't see, I can see lots of hands. So how do we say where we're from in Michigan, right? So we, we put out our mitten and we point to where we're from, right? So, so here's Flint. So Flint is literally in the middle of the Great Lakes. And the Great Lakes is the largest source of fresh water in the world. 20% of the fresh water in the world is literally around the city. So, so how can the water not be okay? And you know, as I said, I was telling everybody that the water was fine because I was being reassured. But my high school girlfriend in my home tells me, you know, they're not treating the water properly. They're not doing something. Uh, they didn't add an important ingredient called corrosion control. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm a doctor that takes care of kids. I don't know what corrosion control is. And she's like, without that necessary ingredient, there is going to be lead in the water. And until that point, I didn't even know that we used lead in our plumbing. Um, and it's widespread in all of our plumbing. Um, so that was really kind of the turning point um, for me to open my eyes, um, because my eyes were closed up until that point. I had no idea um, about how big this crisis was that, and that it could potentially involve a potent and irreversible neurotoxin that the entire city was being exposed to. I didn't want to follow up on that. We talked about, and in your book you mentioned a, um a housewife with two kids. Uh, her name's Leanne Walters. And she noticed that uh, she was losing hair. Her, her, one of her children, I think, had to take long baths and was breaking out in sores. And she thought the water was wrong. And what did she do? And how did she get the ball rolling, just as a citizen? Oh my goodness, uh, Flynn is a story of incredible citizen activism, of incredible citizen science, of citizens partnering and pushing every single button to make their voices heard. Um, and this is a mom that you just, you, they messed with the wrong mom. This was a stay-at-home mom, military wife. She had several children. Her kids were getting sick. They were losing hair. They stopped growing. They would take a bath in the water and they'd have rashes up to that water line. Um, she asked, she, she pushed the city, she pushed the state, she even went up to the EPA and got, finally got a hold of an EPA scientist who came to her home and did testing um, and was trying to alarm other folks that there was a problem with the entire city's water, and he was silenced as an EPA whistleblower. So um, 
she, I, I think of the Flint water crisis as a series of dominoes. And the very first dominoes were these amazing, amazing moms, activists, citizens, pastors, journalists, um, and then the water experts, and then finally me. I was the very last domino in this long series of dominoes, this collection of folks, a team who came together um, to, to say that we've had enough, to say that this is not right um, and that we can do better for our children. You know, it's interesting. The um, her experience was she kept getting rebuffed, as you did. You throughout the book, you mentioned going to one government agency after another, and as you collected more information, each one was sort of knocking it down or ignoring it. I remember you were saying that uh, the county's health department, just correct me up, represented telling you that lead in the water was not a concern of theirs, only lead from paint chips and dust. I mean, this is a sort of bureaucratic mentality. It's very narrow. And then, the, and then you brought in an EPA manager who was really sort of a whistleblower, someone who was really trying to get something. I think it was Miguel mm -hmm. de Torres. And he issued a report showing high levels of lead in Flint's water supply. And then he was reprimanded and labeled as a rogue employee. And then even the Center for, Democra uh, the Center for uh, Disease Control was later found by Congress to knowingly used flawed data. With all of these roadblocks, how do you keep the momentum going as opposed to just saying, well, as many of the political officials told you, the research was done. How do you question the data? Yeah, so for 18 months, everybody was dismissed and denied in the story. Um, like I said, the heroic, the moms, the activists, uh, people were silenced uh, and told they were wrong. Uh, you know, a few months into our water switch, General Motors, which was born in Flint, stopped using this water because it was corroding their engine parts. Imagine that, our water was corroding engine parts, but the people of Flint were told to relax, that, that there was nothing wrong with this water. Um, everybody who had tried to raise an alarm um, was silenced. Mark Edwards, this amazing water expert, came from Virginia Tech when he heard from Leanne Walters, this mom, that there, were, that there was lead in the water and, and that the, the government wasn't doing anything about it. He literally packed his minivan overnight with graduate students and supplies and drove up to Flint um, to work with the citizens to, to, to use science to, to provide unequivocal proof that there was lead in water. And he did. He, he used that science and he proved that there was lead in the water and he shared that transparently. And the state called him a magician and he, that he would just pull rabbits out of hats, as saying he would pull lead out of water wherever he, wherever he went. So everybody was attacked in the story. And then when I shared my research, that which I never should have had to. It never should have gotten to the point where we needed proof that children were being harmed by this water. But when I shared this research, this data, these facts, the science, the evidence that children were being harmed, I was also attacked. Uh, the state said I was wrong, um, that I was an unfortunate researcher causing near hysteria, that I was splicing and dicing numbers. Um, and, and what happened in Flint is not isolated because we see this right now in the country, in this country. We see active science denial. This is what happens when you disrespect common science. Uh, this crisis should have stopped when that first mom held a jug of brown water and said, there's something wrong with my water. Um, but everything, every point, every, at every point, science was being denied. We see that with climate change. We see that with vaccines. We see that with the threats to regulations at the EPA. This is happening right now. 
So what advice, given that experience and that um, trend, what advice can you give people, perhaps in this room or people who you talk to, to not get discouraged? Where are the steps? I mean, it seems to me from listening to you and reading the book, one of the things is question the data, develop your own, and continue to bring in allies who are professionals? Would you say that's sort of the... Absolutely, and um, that is very much why I wrote this book. I wrote this book to share the terrible lessons, to share the crisis, to share what went wrong, but also to share the role of activism and collective resistance and the role of building a village um, to expose an issue. Um, so right now, you know, we, what happened in Flint, just like the disrespect for science, there, it's about this, you know, deeper crises that we are facing right now. Um, democracy issues. Um, you know, Flint, this all happened because Flint had lost democracy. We were under emergency management. Um, the, there was no role of, of city government. City council was usurped. The mayor was usurped. Um, and the people's voices were, were left from the table. We, we see that in, in other elements in this nation right now with gerrymandering and voter disenfranchisement and mass incarceration. Um, we, we, this is a story about, you know, like the denial of science. It's a story about environmental injustice. Flint was, is not the first place where there's been an environmental injustice. All around this country, people who are poor and predominantly minority suffer from environmental burdens. So the, there's so many lessons in this book that are not just about Flint, that are applicable to, to you and to your work and to your communities. And the lessons of activism and resistance are, are part are part of the story and, and, and what needs to be shared. So one of the reasons I didn't want to write this book, because this story is not about me, it is about a team, and it is about building a village of allies. Um, before this crisis, I very much lived in my pediatric bubble, and I thought that pediatricians had a monopoly on caring for children. Like, who, who cares about kids more than pediatricians? Um, but I was proven wrong, and I found out that, hey, a, a water engineer cares about kids as much as I do, and a journalist, and a mom, and an EPA scientist. So build a, you know, build a network of folks who, who believe in what you believe in. And, and sometimes we think we are fighting a fight alone, and you, we're never alone. There are so many folks out there who are fighting the same fights, same, same fights but we just need to open our eyes and find them. Um, it's so much in our professions, we become hyper-specialized. There's a society for this and a society for that, and the journalists only hang out with these folks, and these people only hang out with these folks. Um, but especially in times like today, we need to come together um, because we have more in common than we think. Great. What I, get, I was going to ask uh, the next question, which really you touched on and went into, is the whole question of are we losing our democracy or break down our democracy? And that's tied specifically to, in Michigan, there was a law that basically allowed the governor, and there was a new governor there, Governor Rick uh, Snyder, who, got a, who won the election and then pushed through legislation that basically appointed what they call emergency managers. They could overrule, in fact, they took over the control of cities. Um, uh, city councils and mayors could, they could pass resolutions or whatever they wanted to, but the emergency manager, the EM, could overrule it. In fact, you point out in your book, at one point, the, F the Flint City Council said, we want to go back to Detroit's water, and, and the EM basically said, we can't afford it. But that's the mechanics. Going one step deeper, what was the philosophy that was pushing this? You mentioned austerity. This yeah. was basically EMs were coming in to basically say to cities that were having budget problems, 
you have to cut your budget, you have to cut all these services. Where did that philosophy come from? What was the result? One final thing, you pointed out that most of the EMs, I think you said in Michigan, were assigned to cities that were minorities and really poor communities. So get into that a little bit more. Yeah. So this book and this crisis has a lot of clear villains. You talked about the governor, and there's a, um, a, a spokesperson for our, our water department who's a clear villain in the story, and and the you know other folks that you can par tar target. Like th this person was a clear villain, um, and there's obviously the victims. Um, but what that what this book gets at is what our eyes don't see. Like who. What and who are the underlying villains of this crisis um, and of very similar toxicities in our nation? And those underlying villains are racism. They are austerity. That was the biggest villain in this crisis. So everything that happened in Flint under the emergency management was in an effort to save money. It was a philosophy that big government is bad government and that we have to run government like a business. And there are things that you cannot put a price tag on, and Flint is a perfect example. You cannot put a price tag on clean water, on clean air, on public welfare, because then we become a society where the, privilege, the privileged have differential access to these things, and, and that is not what our government and our values should be or, or, or can be. Um, so, so the underlying villains of this crisis are that lack of democracy, that lack of opportunity, historic and ongoing racism in the city, um, and, and the austerity. So Flint, um, Flint was under emergency management, so literally Flint had lost democracy. In Michigan, if your city was almost poor, the government could just come in and usurp democracy, and overnight, the mayor lost all their power, the city council lost all their power, and that emergency manager's job was one thing, it was austerity, at no matter what the cost. And they were cutting pensions, and they were cutting budgets, and they decided that the water that we had been getting from the Great Lakes, because we are in the middle of the Great Lakes, was too expensive. Um, Pre-treated, fresh Great Lakes water was too expensive for this poor, predominantly minority community. And that instead, we would start drawing water from our local Flint River um, until a new pipeline to the Great Lakes was to be built. Uh, so with a very simple flip of a switch in April of 2014, uh, we started drawing water from the Flint, Flint River. And the, the people protested. Um, there was meetings at our city council. The city council voted and said, no, we want to go back to Detroit, uh, to, to Great Lakes water. And the state said, no, it's too expensive, we can't. And just you know, shot down that decision. Um, but everything uh, was the emergency manager's decision and they, they reported to the governor. At one point in Michigan, like you mentioned, 50% of our African-American population was under emergency management. 50% of our African-American population compared to 2% of our white population. Grossly, grossly undemocratic. Just to add a couple numbers here, um, again in your book, you mentioned that a kid born in Flint will live 15 years less than a kid born in a neighboring community, just to get a sense of how poor the environment is actually affecting their health. And also, um, Flint, I didn't realize this, is the eighth largest majority minority city with 57% black and 37% white. So these are cities that, would you say, did not have any political influence? Um, how about the electeds? I mean, you talk about the mayor rolling over, 
but there were state legislators. How did they yeah, play a role? So, um, Part of this book and part of the story is the incredible role that our elected officials did have. Our state senator, Jim Ananick, was heroic. Our U.S. delegation, our U.S. representative, Dan Kildee, our two Michigan U.S. senators, Stabenon Peters, were phenomenal and to this day continue to be fighters for Flint. Um, so other elected officials did play a significant role. Um, but you're, So yeah, I talk about um, the environment of, how, of, of Flint. Uh, Flint is a place like many in this country where your zip code, where you are born, is the greatest predictor of where you may end up. And that is, that is absolutely not fair and not equi equitable. Um, a child in Flint um, actually will live 15 years less than a child in a neighboring adjacent zip code. Um, and that's, that's common in many communities where the, the, the toxicities of the community, and I'm not just talking about lead, but, but the violence and the hopelessness and the toxic stresses, the poverty, um, the lack of good nutrition, the lack of safe places to play, all these things are known to impact children's development, are known to increase risk factors, are known to lead to chronic diseases, and are known to decrease life expectancy. Um, so as a pediatrician, we know what these toxicities do to children. And this water crisis is one added toxicity to children who are already burdened, like many of our nation's children, with unnecessary and preventable toxic stress. You talk a great deal in your book, and it reads like a detective story, and you've described that, but also about your own personal family history. And how did being a, from an immigrant family, a minority, even in the US, but also even in that community probably, but perhaps perceived as a person of color, how did that, did that help or hinder you working with citizens and public officials and agencies? How did that play out? Yeah, so this book is really weird. So this book is not just a book about the Flint water crisis. It's very much um, a memoir to know kind of my role and my work. You have to know me. Um, and, and part of who I am is, is, is an immigrant. I came to this country when I was four. Uh, we were fleeing the regime of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. We were coming to this country for freedom, for opportunity, for that American dream. Um, and that was absolutely realized for me and my family. Um, you know, Lady Liberty opened her arms when I was a kid, which if you compare it to what's happening today, we are that those arms are no longer open for the children who are trying to get to this country. Um, so I, I grew up every day, um, every day aware, every day fortunate, every day lucky and, and cognizant to be in this country. I also grew up very aware of how one decision, I, I could have been back home in Iraq where cousins were suffering from air raids and you know, uncles were in, you know, conscripted to the Iran-Iraq war where like a million people died. Um, the first time that, that I, I, actually this is in the book, the first time that I saw a dead baby uh, was when I was 11 or 12 and my father showed me a picture of a baby um, who was murdered in Halebcha in northern Iraq, um, where Saddam Hussein poisoned an entire village of his own people uh, with the largest chemical weapons attack. 5,000 people died. Um, and that never left my mind. So, so that was the milieu of my childhood, knowing very acutely what injustice was, knowing very acutely 
what what people in power could do to vulnerable populations, um, but also being being so lucky to be in this country and pledging really my career and my life to, to serve, um, especially the underserved. Um, so I think having that background gave me like this heightened antenna for injustice and, and really put me in the place where I was uh, to be able to see what I was able to see where others didn't see those things. So now that there is exposure, public exposure, and the government did finally respond to having uh, lead in the water. What's the current status right now in Flint, and, and what's the path forward? Yeah, so this, this book is about a crisis. It's about resistance, but it's about hope. And that's what I want people to go away with, is about the hope that we are building in this in this city that, that can be replicated in so many communities. So yeah, we had this terrible crisis. An entire population was exposed to a neurotoxin. Uh, we also had one of the largest outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease. People died from this pneumonia. There's homicide charges against state officials because of that. We had a massive, you know, we had skin issues but we had a betrayal of trust. We had a, we have we, we have emotions that are raw and, and anger and anxiety and stress to this day. People of Flint to this day are on bottled water and filtered water. Um, our water quality has has dramatically improved, um, but we are in like a third of the way through our pipe replacement program. So the 18 months that we were on this corrosive, untreated water, it ate up our infrastructure. It ate up our lead plumbing. Um, so after I released my research that showed um, children being exposed, within weeks we switched back to the impossible. We switched back to treated Great Lakes water. But the 18 months that we were on this corrosive water ate up our pipes. Um, which the EPA folks said it was like drinking through a lead-painted straw. You never knew when a piece of lead scale was going to come off and, and break into the drinking water. Um, and you can't see lead, so what the eyes don't see. You can't see lead in water. You can't even see the effects of lead for years, if not decades. Um, so our pipes are being replaced, and that's awesome. We'll only be the third city in the country that's replaced our lead pipes. But because of that earth-moving infrastructure work is the reason people still need to be on filtered and bottled water. So that's kind of the, the infrastructure water part of the story uh, as to where we are right now. But I get to spend my day um, working with the kids. And from the moment that we realized we had this population-wide exposure, our focus went to the tomorrows of these children. As a pediatrician, I literally took an oath to, to protect these kids. I have to make sure they're healthy today, but as a pediatrician, so much of our work is to make sure that these kids have the brightest future possible. Everything we do is prevention. And what was happening in the water was really threatening the tomorrows of all of these kids. So we have put into place really a model public health program, state-of-the-art stuff, one-of-the-kind things that are happening in Flint to, to minimize, to limit, to buffer the impact of this crisis. Massive investment in things like home visiting programs, universal childcare services, uh, preschool services, early literacy programs. Every kid in Flint gets a book mailed to them now every month from the age of zero to five. And Flint is a city like many where there's about one book for every 300 kids. Uh, we have Medicaid expansion, we have trauma-informed care, mental health services. Um, so we are leaning on this on science to, to, to get us through this crisis. Flint is a story where science denied, was denied. Science ultimately spoke truth to power, and we are leaning on the incredible science of child development, on resilience to mitigate the impact of this crisis. And as an academic, we're very much going to be assessing this work so that we can share it with other communities suffering from very similar um, situations. It's really interesting to see that the um, 
the exposure of the toxicity in the water and the um, emphasis to come up with a solution was very uh, much driven by sort of a rational approach as opposed to emotional or dogma was based on science. But also, um, there was a role that the media played, uh, independent journalists. I know as you mentioned, Ron Foger from the Flint Journal and other, other mm -hmm. folks. How critical was it to have an independent media providing some some exposure to what you were doing. Absolutely. So uh, there's been many reports about the Flint water crisis, and several have highlighted the role of journalists. We would be nowhere without journalists, especially our investigative journalists. Um, the Ford Foundation actually funded our state chapter of the ACLU, uh, funded an investigative reporter to write about the emergency management law. Um, so there was already a journalist on the ground looking at the consequences of what happens when you take away democracy. And it was that journalist, Kurt Guyette from the ACLU, who was the first to get the memo from the EPA, from the amazing mom, who really exposed this water crisis. Um, so journalists have played a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal role, especially investigative journalists, which is frightening because we are losing investigative journalists. There are not as many that are, that are in our communities anymore. They really are the fourth estate. Absolutely. Um, on a personal level, um, a number of people perhaps here and people I've met, um, they become, I would say, committed to solving a major social problem. And it takes time and energy. Um, many people like yourself have a family and they have a husband and children. How do you, how do you balance that desire to help the larger world and get something done, at the same time, balance out the need to also relate to your personal family. You used one section, remember, in the book saying that your, your two daughters, Layla and Nina, were concerned that you were uh, gone a lot. <laughs> they still are. We got them a cat. They're okay now. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think your, your life and your career goes through ups and downs, and sometimes your career and your profession are going to be super busy, and, and sometimes there's going to be, it's going to ebb. So um, there was no choice for me here. There was no option to stay home and go to Girl Scout meetings and soccer practice. I tried to do all that too, but it was impossible. Um, but this was a crisis. This was an emergency. Um, this was a month or so of no sleep, lots of coffee, and I was at Starbucks early today, I got some coffee. Um, so it was continuous, continuous, continuous um, needing to find out what was happening with the children. And, and the personal life went on the back burner um, because of the urgency of the situation. Um, my children in Flint that I take care of are no different than my children at home. And my kids have actually said, it's like we got 6,000 new siblings. Um, so, I mean, that is how much I, I was invested you know, in this work, and I continue to be invested in this work. Um, and it also, you know, goes back to building a village of support. So I have a village of support kind of at work, but I also have a village of support at home. Um, and if it was not for, you know, my mom and, you know, my parents and my husband really helping, this would have been impossible as well. So um, writing a book takes a lot of energy, psychological energy, a lot of hours. And a lot of self-doubt somewhat, because as you write, you're wondering, is everybody going to read this? And also, what am I saying? So when you're done with the book, and you're out now, what is your hope for what it contributes to people 
who are living in situations, maybe not just the question of, of water quality, but the quality of life in their cities. What do you want people, when they, when they read this book, I always like to bring out the author's book, there it is, it's available there, what the eyes don't see, what do you want them to take away from this that will help them Absolutely. become effective as a citizen activist? Yeah, so I never set out in my career as a pediatrician to write a book. But then again, I never thought I'd work to be a part of exposing a crisis. Um, and I first, a lot of folks are like, oh, you need to write a book, or they need to do a movie. I'm like, go away, I'm so busy. <laughs> like, I, I, have, I can't, I don't have time to do this. Our work in Flint is, is really just beginning. And, and, the, and the recovery work is happening in the same urgency as our uncovering work. Um, but then I realized that this is such an important story to share, that it wasn't just about Flint, that it was about really what's happening all over in our nation um, and what's, what's happening to children all over in our nation. We were talking earlier, um, it's almost as if we, we have an ongoing war on our own children. Um, you know, you look at the kids at the border, you look at what's happening in Flint, we can't even guarantee safe drinking water. You look at what's happening in our schools, where because of our inaction on gun violence, kids are being slaughtered in our schools. You look at our child poverty rate, literally one of the highest of all developing countries. You look at how we use CHIP as a bargaining tool in, in, the, in the government. We, by all standards, do not value our children in this country. And, and that is selfish and that is self-defeating. Um, so that is one of the reasons that I wrote this book. I also wrote this book to share a, po a positive immigrant story. And I don't think that would have been as big a part of this book if it wasn't for the last presidential election. Um, when the first um, a travel ban came into effect, Iraq was in that first list of seven countries. And literally within a half an hour, I penned an op-ed for the New York Times called Corroding the American Dream. Because if that first travel ban was in effect, I would not be in this country. And, and imagine what we are missing out on today. I grew up, like I said, you know, welcomed in this country. Like, yeah, it was weird. I had hummus in my lunch, and nobody knew what hummus was 30 years ago. And now you can get like five subtypes of hummus. But like, you know, I, I grew up, you know, confident and, and competent because I, my diversity was welcomed, and, and that's not happening. So I wanted to share that positive immigrant story, especially of an Arab American, and not as a terrorist or, you know, associated with war. Um, so those those are two big reasons why I, I wanted to share the story. But the biggest reason is, as I mentioned earlier, I want it to be an inspiring call to action for everybody. For, for you, no matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter what your profession, no matter where you live, no matter how long you've been in this country, if you've been here for centuries or you came here as an immigrant with my family, we, as MLK said, we may have, we're, we, we came here on different boats, but we're all on the same ship. Or we, no, no, we, we came here on different ships, but we're all on the same boat. Um, we're all in this together. Um, and that's what I hope to share in this book, is that message, that we all are powerful people, and that we have the power within us to open our eyes, to be awake, to take action, and, and to build a better tomorrow for especially our children. That's a very great way for, for ending up. Uh, Thank you. Summarizing what, what we hear about. Thank you. Did you 
Sure, so the question was about the concept of, of the public hospital. So the hospital that I work for, work at, is Hurley Medical Center. It's been around for over a century. It's a public hospital. It's city-owned, city city-chartered. Um, it cares for our most vulnerable population. Uh, so you, as you'll read in the book, um, the CEO of that public hospital, a strong female nurse, had my back, which was unusual and I was very fortunate. So when I came to her and I shared this data, she's like, we're a public hospital. We're a children's hospital. It is our duty to care for our kids. Um, and I think that's changed a lot in, in, in medicine right now. So you see a lot of for-profits, you see a lot of large conglomerates, you see big boards that have you know different power. Um, so I think the, the status of the hospital uh, played a role in their support for me as well. My name is Juanita um, Galloway. Um, okay, I actually have three questions. Okay, that's okay. Um, okay, so you said that, um, they said that it was too expensive um, to have the water from the Great Lakes go to Flint. Was that an excuse or was that true? So the price that they were paying Detroit, Detroit is where we bought our Great Lakes water from, uh, was deemed too expensive uh, by the emergency manager. Detroit had raised their prices, and they said, we're not going to pay those prices, and instead started drawing water from the Flint River. So it was a cost-cutting move to get water from the Flint River. Okay, and then, so there was lead in the pipes, in all the pipes even in the cities that were receiving water from the Great Lakes, correct? Correct. Okay, but it was because of the water from the Flint River that caused the lead to come out? Couple things. So the Flint River water is innately more corrosive than lake water. So river water was more corrosive, but it would have been okay to use, difficult to use, but okay to use if it was treated properly. It was not treated with corrosion inhibitor, corrosion control to, to not make it corrosive. So it was the treatment of the Flint water that was the biggest problem. You got it. Sure, so the question was about the children are receiving early intervention and how much is that really going to affect? Well, we hope it will help. We cannot sit back and do nothing, so we are throwing everything at these children. So we have universal home-based early intervention, we have high-quality childcare, we have nutrition support, we have healthcare access. We cannot take away this exposure. You cannot take it away, but you can mitigate it, you can buffer it with great nutrition, great healthcare, and a nutrient-rich environment. So the question was about how uh, defending your science, defending your evidence against the state. So when we shared our science, um, and our science at, that was shared publicly at a press conference, which if there's any academics or physicians in the audience, you do not share science at a press conference. You share science through the peer review process. You, you have it get published, you have it go through, you know, when, when you do posters and presentations. But, but that process takes a long time. So I did something that was academically disobedient. Um, and I actually received an award from MIT for academic disobedience, which was very difficult to share with my children that I got a disobedience award. But you guys have to behave. Um, so uh, we shared that the percentage of kids with elevated lead levels had increased after this water switch. And it was contrary to anything that was happening at our nation, state, and city level. And it was a massive underestimation of exposure because not many kids were tested and they were not tested at the age of peak lead and water exposure. So this data was done via our hospital records because I could not get their surveillance data from both the county or the state. 
Blood lead levels is one of the things that counties and states have the data on. It's like flu surveillance data and HIV surveillance data. And I was trying to get that data, but roadblocks everywhere. So when I publicly shared my data, the state said, hey, that is not consistent with our data. We have an even bigger sample size, and yours is wrong. Um, and all these other attacks on why I was wrong and, and they were right. Um, so at one point, and you'll go through this in the book, I believed them. I'm like, oh my God, I totally screwed up. I'm wrong, they have more data. Um, you know, what am I doing? I should have just kind of stayed a pediatrician and seen patients and, and not opened my eyes to, to any of these issues. Um, but, but our science was right, our numbers were right. Uh, we went back and we double checked and we triple checked and we quadruple checked. Um, but ultimately, what kind of got us back in the fight was recognizing that all of this data that we had, all of the spreadsheets, those who work in, in big data or public health, it's all about big numbers. But all of these big numbers in my data were kids, were children. It was probably a child I saw within that last year or so. Um, and it was the kids that kind of got us back in this fight and enabled us to fight back with more data. When we did fight back with more data, our, our data was then even more refined. We got help with um, a medical geographer who geocoded all of our data, so we were able to even further pinpoint who was getting what the, the, the contaminated water, and it showed an even elevated um, exposure risk. Okay. Sure, so the first question was about um, what else could have been done to expedite the convincing of the state that something was wrong, or how else how else did that happen? So I, th I like to say that it was the science and the data that really spoke truth to power and finally got them to concede. Um, eventually, the state medical doctor called me and um, had a very kind of physician-to-physician -physician conversation, and they really looked at their data and redid it the way that we had done it and, and showed the same thing. Um, but also, at that point, the media level got really high. Um, after my press conference, there was a peak in, in uh, what then became national media on the Flint story. And I think it was that national media embarrassment that also got them to concede. Um, the second part of your story was about, or the second part of your question um, was about the village that we brought together. Um, and some of it was deliberate and, and some of it was accidental of folks coming together. So I talked about Mark Edwards, this amazing uh, water expert from Virginia Tech. I talked about my friend who was this water expert that I went to high school with. She, she knew him, she knew of him, so she made that connection. Um, so that was one connection, and he knew the mom, and he knew the EPA scientist, and then I knew the journalist. So um, it was like a, a spider weaving, weaving, weaving a web um, that brought all these folks together. Yes, over there. Yes. I'm Crystal, I'm a pediatrician of Yay, awesome. And my clinic does not take commercial insurance, it's all kids and immigrant. And then I see a lot of the same things with like ACEs and trauma informed Yeah. Like sometimes they're services, but it's so incredibly hard for people to actually utilize them in like a meaningful fashion. And I was just incredibly inspired by the book. Awesome. And I just think it's amazing that you still manage to persist in all this despite like the cynicism that sometimes happens when things don't move or bureaucracy and things don't actually seem to serve the patients. But then you see like day to day, like these stories of people who are there in the clinic and just like how the system is like broken and not functioning. Yeah. So I just wanted to mention that this is highly inspiring to me. Like, awesome. Because a lot of times the idealism gets like teared down after years and years and years of like fighting against like, the, the man. Of yeah. It's incredibly hard for people who know the system to navigate. I know. And then um, I was just wondering how you managed to 
get like all the legislative funding dedicated towards all these wraparound services because this isn't water related. Lots of trips to DC. You know, like the, no, just kidding. <laughs> this huge package of public health nurses. Like we have some of that with the King County, but the fact that you managed to leverage that out even more, like that's amazing. And the implementing and like, how are you doing? <laughs> Uh, we'll talk. Um, so, um, kudos to you. Kudos to you for being a pediatrician for our most underserved kids. That's awesome. Um, yay! Awesome, 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 awesome. Um, so, it, a lot of um, there's a lot of kind of pediatrics in my book, and I, pediatricians we go into it because of the kids, and and we very much recognize the social determinants of health, um, the role that the environment and society and all these other situations play on the on the life of our children. Um, so July is when you doctors start. So July 1st, that's when you're never supposed to get sick and go to the hospital in July, but there's a lot of supervision. Anyways, so my real job is I'm a, I'm a residency director, so I train pediatricians. And so my new docs just started like a few weeks ago nine days ago, right? And so when they come in, I tell them, I'm like, congratulations, you're a brand new doctor, but do you know that medicine only contributes to 15% of health outcomes? That's it. So you need to ask about poverty. So you do poverty screening and you do blood pressure screening. You ask about housing stability. You ask about you know, new nutrition stability. You ask about all these other things that make an even greater impact on the lives of our children. Um, and the profession of medicine is well studied that as people progress through, through medicine, you get more and more jaded and you get more burnt out and you begin to focus on billing and coding and EMR and ICD-10 and you lose why you went into medicine. Um, and it's, it's sad and it's heartbreaking, but I hope that this book is another example for folks to never lose sight of why you went into, into medicine and that is to serve and that is to be a voice and a very credible voice in your community. Um, so keep doing what you're doing. Um, to that respect, you can change systems. So before this crisis exploded, we had just moved into our brand new clinic in, in Flint. So our clinic is on the second floor of a farmer's market. It's the only clinic. So imagine your beautiful Pike Place Market. Like imagine a clinic on the second floor. Um, and we moved there on purpose. And it's the only clinic that we know of that's co-located in the farmer's market. And we moved there on purpose because we have no grocery stores in Flint. And I was telling my patients, um, you should eat avocados and kale. And they would just look at me like, what was I, what was I doing? Like, get off my ivory tower. Um, so we made the conscious decision, the environmental move to put our clinic on the second floor of a market. And every single kid that comes in for an ear infection or a well baby visit gets a prescription for fruits and veggies in the, in the basement. We have a social worker, we have a WIC office, we have behavioral health integrated, we have a dietitian, we have legal support. So it is all of these wraparound things that are so important. So medicine needs to get out of their silo and they need to recognize all these other things. And you mentioned ACEs. ACEs are the, the, the most important thing right now in pediatrics and public health is the knowledge of adverse childhood of experiences, that what happens in early childhood really has this graded and predictable pattern for a child's entire life course trajectory. And when you know that, we should be making even more investments in early childhood. So how are all these things funded? Um, loudness, persistence, stubbornness. Um, so when the, um, you know, a lot of people, when this water crisis happened, a lot of people are like, well, the wa water crisis, you need the treatment as water. I'm like, no, water crisis, the treatment is high quality childcare. They're like, what are you talking about? So you'll read this in the book, but the way we frame this crisis as this is one 
adverse childhood ex experience, one toxic stress on top of many toxic stresses. So the treatment is this eco-biodevelopmental model that buffers all that. So when the governor did had his first state of the state address where he admitted fault and said, I'm gonna fix this, he actually said the word toxic stress because I gave him a lecture on toxic stress. Um, but that is why we were able to get a lot of the, the funding in place. But Another reason I wrote this book is, is, to, um, is to get more funding for our work. So part of the proceeds of this book go to our Flint Kids Fund, uh, which is this 20-year fund to make sure that we have the nutrition programs and the education services and the breastfeeding support programs because right now it's only funded for a couple years. Sorry, that yes, was a long answer. So the question was, um, how did Flint get in this situation to need an emergency management anyways? So uh, we've got lots of Michigander. So what was Flint famous for before the water crisis? GM cars, so Flint was the birthplace of cars, the birthplace of GM, um, and at one point Flint had the highest per capita income in the country. People in Flint made the most money in the entire country. But being even more important than the birthplace of cars, extra credit if you know this, what else is Flint famous for related to the cars? Michael Moore. Besides Michael Moore. <laughs> before, before Michael Moore. No, partly, not exactly. Oh, Kettering is in my book. He, he has an evil lead history. He put lead in gasoline. Eh, not really. Uh, <laughs> you guys are great, though. So uh, right after GM was born, um, there was um, disobedient, resistant, what are you going to say? Yes, awesome, extra credit, you guys. Okay, so uh, it's called the Great Sit-Down Strike uh, happened in Flint. Uh, auto workers for 44 days occupied Flint car plants and shut down the operation of the auto industry. And they demanded a fair share of prosperity. They demanded occupational safety. They demanded benefits and a pension and living wages. And finally, through the intervention of Governor Murphy, the, our, one of our best Michigan governors, who went on to become a Supreme Court Justice, which is timely today. He wrote the dissenting opinion in the Korematsu case, which was about the Japanese internment, an amazing, amazing guy, which is also relevant today. But he personally intervened as, law, as well as President Roosevelt, and they, they recognized their union, they recognized the UAW. And because of their disobedient actions, the middle class was born in Flint. So Flint was also the birthplace of the middle class. Flint is where the very first subdivision in America is. So like, so what happened then? What happened to Flint? <laughs> so then decades, Flint has been in crisis for decades, uh, suffered from disinvestment, unemployment. It is a city where it, the, it's, it's GM left its birthplace and, and divested. Um, poverty, racism, institutional structural racism, blockbusting redlining that left the city uh, starved and poor and segregated. Um, so lots and lots of um, lots of different things. You can't really point to one thing that created modern day Flint, but many, many different policies and actions that have created modern day Flint um, that left it in the starved state. If there was one thing I wish to prevent in other cities um, that would have prevented Flint, one thing that could have been done was, was regionalization. So um, Flint was left isolated and everything in Michigan is dependent on a tax base. Uh, we've lost half of our population and the suburbs did not want to be part of the city anymore. Um, there was many efforts to unify. There was an effort called One Flint, where the Mott Foundation was really involved, but it never happened, and primarily because of racism. Uh, so as a city expands, it's really important to stay connected uh, so that there's equality of services. 
the question was like, how do you diagnose the pathology? What's your diagnosis on the pathology of the folks that were denying this problem and, and denying me? Um, I wish I knew nobody wakes up and says, I'm gonna poison kids today. That's not what, what government folks do. That's not why they, are, they do the work of public health and, and water quality. So I don't think, I don't think that was it. Um, there's been many investigations and many efforts at accountability to answer that question. Why? Why, why did this happen? Why was there a, there was a cover-up? The state health department actually had seen a spike in blood lead levels uh, the previous summer. They covered it up, and that's why there's charges against health officials who their own job is to track blood lead levels. I don't know why. Was it, was it laziness? Was it a disregard for this population? A lot of the investigations and reports have pointed that this is a clear case of environmental injustice, that because of the demographics of the, the population, because it was poor, because it was predominantly minority, that this happened to start with and that it continued for so long. That's a great question. So the question was, did you get uh, good data analytics skills in med school? So I also have I also have an MPH degree. So I also have a public health degree, which helped with some of the biostats and the epidemiology, because doctors are so myopic. So we just see what's in front of us. And if a kid is not presenting to the ER with an acute intoxication, then there's what's led, what the you know subclinical symptoms. Like you see, like years later, I'm not worrying about that. Um, so I think what was even more important than just having that medical background, or it was was the merger of medicine and public health. Um, I think having those two in my pocket really helped me to step back and see what's happening at a population level. So I talk about my clinic, like, yeah, I saw, you know, I see kids in clinic with elevated lead levels, but I'm one doctor in one clinic. Like, what is happening in the bigger picture? Um, so, like, I was grateful for all the research classes and the required research projects and all these different things that I had to do because, like, I needed to know what a p-value was. And, like, that's exciting and sexy in the book. They talk about p-values. So so you can geek out if you know anything what I'm talking about. So it, it's in the book. But uh, yeah, so it's not enough. But there's not enough environmental health training, and there's not enough public health training, and there's not enough economics training to be a, a well-rounded physician who can care for, for children and, and people. You need to know about, about economics and about poverty and about all this stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that you don't get in medical training. So the question was, in August of 2016, Hillary Clinton came to Flint. Was that helpful? So they, uh, she came to Flint. Um, she had, they had a, the, one of the primary uh, Democratic debates in Flint. Um, and I think it was helpful. She helped elevate the issue to a national level. Um, she, um, she held the governor accountable. Um, so I, you know, I think I think it was helpful. Her her family was also very involved. Chelsea Clinton has a, a public health degree. She spent an hour with me in clinic, um, asking some of the smartest questions about what was going on and, and what needed to happen next. Their family also gave a personal contribution to our Flint Kids Fund. Uh, Hillary very much understood uh, what lead does, uh, really with her career working with with children and and, and children's rights. So uh, I I thought it was helpful, but. I guess not helpful enough. So the question um, was, uh, what innovations are happening um, in response? What kind of collective work? Um, so environmental justice. So I was fortunate. So I started out my career as an environmentalist. So I went to um, university school, University of Michigan School of Environmental Re Natural Resources and Environment. So 
yeah, we'll talk later. Um, so I don't know. I think I think my professor's brother is here. He, I, my, one of my former professors was an environmental justice professor. Um, so I knew about what environmental justice was like 20 years ago as a college student. Um, so like recently, people come to me like, have you ever heard about the concept of environmental justice? I'm like, yeah, I heard. Like I had classes from the people who invented the field of environmental justice. Um, so it's not new, but people think thinks it's new. But the central tenant of environmental justice, as you know, is that the people involved have to be part of the decision making uh, if a new pipeline is going to be built or if a water source changes or a school is going to be built that the people affected have to be part of that that's what democracy is all about so that self-determination that involvement that citizenry needs is coming back to flint and we have new and kind of rising movements um, we kind of had our old guard community groups but now we have a new organization called flint rising which is actually a lot of younger activist folks who are at the table and being and part of the recovery work of what needs to happen next. All of our work in Flint, although it's all very much science-based, is community-informed, community-driven, community-participatory. Um, we actually have a parent partner group where parents, they're not even called advisors, parents are involved in all of our decision-making and plans. And we also have a youth advisory board where kids are telling us what, what we need to do. And as we've learned, kids are brilliant, kids are smart, kids need to vote. Um, you know, kids, kids are leading the way and we are very much being informed by them and their, and their innovations. Um, so I think that kind of self-determination is, is happening, but obviously there's more room, more room to grow. Go ahead. So the question was, what were the forces that really led Flint to be in crisis for the last few decades, economic and social crisis. Um, so it was um, the depopulation, the disinvestment. Um, General Motors moved to automation. It moved to outsourcing, uh, globalization. Uh, they, they essentially abandoned uh, the city. At one point, Flint had employed 80,000 people in the city. Now it's less than 5,000. Um, but a lot of that is because, you know, machines could do it better. Um, and, and, and they were outsourced jobs. Um, and like I mentioned, it was also this like a long history of, of racist policies, of real estate greed um, that, that kind of really left the city starved and, and, and abandoned. Okay, one, one last question. Marhaba. Marhaba, uh, uh, I'm also faculty at attending a residency, so you're my hero by redefining what physicians are. This is, this is our job. This is what doctors are supposed to do. So the question is, how do you, how do you transform that into a curriculum that residents can learn? So we'll be, we'll be having lots of Dr. Mona. So you can, in my book, um, I talk about a rotation that I run called community pediatrics, which is very common in pediatrics, but needs to be in all specialties, which gets people out of the hospital, which, um, you know, they go on home visits and they meet with, you know, agencies in the community like protective services and legal support and the food bank and, and leaders in the community. That needs to happen in every specialty. Every specialty needs to get out of the hospital um, and to see about all the other things that interplay in the lives of our patients. Well, let's give one more hand to Dr. Mona. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you.